Our Father, as we think of the kingdom that you have created, the kingdom to which we as your children belong, we look forward today to the day when we will walk through the streets as they're portrayed in the book of Revelation. In the meantime, Father, you have made us citizens of the kingdom here on this planet. Even as Abraham was an alien <coughs> in the land, so we are an alien on this planet in many ways in that fact that we're not part of the kingdom of this world. We're so thankful, Lord, that wherever your church is found, we're, we're knit together not by nationality, but by our common faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we look further into the life of this man, Jacob, that our faith will be strengthened as we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the uh, heritage that came through them, through the nation of Israel. Father, we recognize so many things that, so many thoughts and actions and activities that took place in their lives that are similar to ours. Father, may we learn and grow through the word as we study today. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like for us to turn to the 27th chapter of the book of Genesis, and I'd like to read beginning at verse 10. I think we'll try the 28th chapter. <laughs> Genesis 28:10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Last week, we looked at the first part of that, this ladder erected between heaven and earth in the dream. We noted that uh, the term ladder is uh, used only this one time in Scripture, and hence we believe it really was a ladder, more or less as we would think of a ladder, as opposed to a staircase, because there are many other Hebrew words that can be used for a staircase. Uh, a ladder is an ancient uh, implement, so it wasn't something that would have been unknown to, um, to Jacob. The importance, of course, is not the, the physical structure that might have been seen, but the activity that was going on, the angels ascending and descending. And we talked a little bit about uh, the fact that the Scripture tells us in Hebrews that the angels are God's ministering spirits sent to minister to those who are of the kingdom. So they portray that connection between God above and earth below. God stood at the top of the ladder. 
and identified himself to Jacob. And he did so in no uncertain terms. He said, I am the Elohim of Abraham and Isaac. Now that was a term that was well known to Jacob. Through Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father, he had come to know the God Elohim, the God who is also known as Yahweh. He comes to know this one. And so when God identifies himself, he knows to whom he is listening. God went on then to promise to Jacob the same land that he had promised to Abraham. And if you go back to the 13th chapter, we won't do that. But if you go back to the 13th chapter, God had made a promise to Abraham that this would be your land. And then in the 26th chapter, he promised that same, made the same promise to Isaac. So to Abraham, he had promised the land of Canaan. To Isaac, he promised the land of Canaan. And now to Jacob, he promises the land of Canaan. So I think it's very important for us to constantly be reminded of the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs who are important, not because Abraham was the great one and the others just kind of came in his shadow, but God renewed the promise to each one of these men and fulfilled his promise to them as the centuries went by. He then promised that Jacob's descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, the concept of the dust of the earth, of course, is simply a figure of speech. Obviously, their, their descendants would not be as numerous as the dust of the earth, literally, because you, know, you can't count the particles of dust. They're in the quadrillions or whatever big number you can think of. Uh, the idea is that they would be very, very numerous. And we know that the children of Israel would ultimately multiply into the millions. And most of us are familiar, of course, with the fact that six million were killed during the time of the Nazi repression. And today on the planet, uh, there are approximately 16 million who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thus identified. So it would become a large nation. This is the same analogy that God had used with Abraham and with Isaac, again, using it with Jacob. So we see the continuity of God's promise here. He makes the promise to Abraham and doesn't just expect Abraham to teach Isaac and Isaac to teach Jacob, and that will be the end of it, but God himself personally comes to enforce the truth and make it real to these other patriarchs. God touches the life of every individual personally. He touches your life. He touches my life personally, day by day. We come to personally know the Lord. We often hear the term, have you taken Christ as your personal Savior? Now, the word personal Savior is not a biblical term, but the concept is, the concept that Jesus is personal to you and personal to me. It's not like in the year 988 when Vladimir, the Prince of Kiev, ordered the entire population of Kiev into the uh, Dnieper River for a mass baptism of the whole city. That's not very personal. When you've got 100,000 people out in the river being dumped, one, dunked one after the other uh, by, the, by the priests or poured by the priests, that's, that's not real personal in terms of your relationship to God. There are different concepts within Christendom through history. There are the concepts of, of conversion en masse, that is, as a group, uh, where the priest stands on a hill and holds up the cross and says, I dedicate this whole town now to, to God. That's not real personal for the individual, but as you go through Scripture, you find it's a personal relationship that each individual must have with God. And I think it's important for us to remember this as we study through the Old Testament because we have a tendency to lump Israel, 
to lump the nation together and to think of the Israelites as only the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Benjaminites and so forth, and not to remember that each individual Reubenite, Gadite, and Benjaminite had to have his or her own relationship with God. Now, it wouldn't be exactly in the same terms we have it because they didn't have Jesus yet to come. But in terms of a God to whom they prayed and a God in whom they trusted, it was the same. We find that they would become numerous as the dust of the earth, as the stars of the sky. And it's very interesting that it was in this same place, the same spot on this planet, that God had made this promise to Abraham. Abraham was standing at the same place outside the city that would become the city of Bethel. When he made the promise, to Abraham as it was when he made the promise to Jacob. In addition, the same promise that God had made to Abraham that the nations of the world will be blessed through your family, God makes that same promise to Jacob. Obviously, what does this tell us? That Jacob is God's chosen covenant man. He doesn't fall into the place of being the third member of this trinity of patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, simply because he is Isaac's son. He comes into that position because he is the one chosen by God to be the next covenant man, the one through whom the covenant would be passed and through whom, of course, the messianic line would flow. And, of course, we know that Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs, and that's when Israel really gets its beginning as the 12 sons of Jacob have their children and begin to multiply rapidly into the nation we know as Israel. So we have the beginning, or I should say the next step in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. I, I've really had a hard time with those who have focus their attention on the New Testament and pretend like the Old Testament doesn't even exist. Because it's hard, it's extremely difficult to understand the New Testament without the Old Testament background. <laughs> In fact, uh, Paul tells us that the Old Testament was there to be a schoolmaster. The schoolmaster for the people who would come to know Christ as Savior. So we would understand what God's plan was, understand the needs of, uh, the need of people to have redemption. It's very vital to make that study. Then in the 15th verse of this particular passage, we have the record of a tremendous promise that God makes to Isaac, to, to Jacob. He had already made the same promise to Abraham and Isaac, and now he makes the promise to Jacob. First of all, he says, I am with you. And I don't think it's an accident. Maybe there's no other way to say it. But as you think about this, I am with you. Who is I am? Well, we wouldn't know anything more than just God unless we were all so familiar with the burning bush incident when Moses stood before the bush and heard God speak to him and say, and Moses said, well, to whom, I mean, who, who will I say is the one that has called me and has sent me? And he said, tell him that I am has sent you. I am that I am, the eternally self-existent one. It's interesting, you probably have all had the visits at your front door, as we just did this past week, of the uh, 
people who sell you the little, or would like to sell you, the little Watchtower magazine and so forth. And, uh, you know, it, it just keeps coming to me. What did Jesus say in, uh, I think it was about the sixth chapter of John or so along in there, where they were talking to him about the fact that, uh, here, how, why should they listen to him? You're, you're too young for us to pay attention to you. And he says, before Abraham was, what did he say? I was, I am. Why does he say that? I think it is a direct reference back to, to Exodus. He is calling himself the I am. I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. I am the one who was in the burning bush incident. I am that I am. The I am is going to be with Jacob, the eternally self-existent one, the one who needs no one, needs nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. The concept behind the I am. And he would personally accompany Jacob wherever he went. Jacob would never go anywhere without this one being with him. This implies, of course, that God was there for what purpose? To guide his steps. Secondly, he said, I will keep you. I will exercise great care over you. God would preserve Jacob from destruction in any of the calamities of life. Did God say, you will have no troubles? You will have no problems? No calamities will come nigh you? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, I will be with you through them all, and I will keep you. I think, you know, the promise that uh, God gave through uh, the psalmist, where the psalmist said, a thousand shall fall at thy right hand and ten thousand on the other side, but it will not come nigh you, is the promise that God is making here to Jacob. Calamities will come, but you will come through, and I will keep you through them all. This didn't mean that he wouldn't have trials and tribulations because what did Jesus say to us? In this life you will have tribulation. But the point is, I will be with you through them all. God will carry us through. God would carry Jacob through. Now Jesus prayed a similar prayer concerning us. If you'd like to look at the 17th chapter of John for a moment, John chapter 17. This, of course, is part of that wonderful high priestly prayer that Christ prayed. That prayer that whenever you begin to feel kind of down and out and alone and as if God is, is somewhere distant, read those, this, this portion of the book of John. And just insert yourself here because Jesus is praying for us in this passage. Verse 11, John 17, 11. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name which thou hast given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, my joy, made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. The Jesus talking to the Father that the Spirit would be with us to keep us in all of the problems and trials and tribulations of life and to keep us from the ravages of the evil one. Now we can, by our actions and attitudes, partially negate some of this. The Scripture tells us that Jesus prayed that we be kept from the evil one. But you and I can let the evil one into our lives by purposely practicing some form of sin and giving him thus a toehold in our lives. We must reject that. Scripture says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Jesus prayed that we might be kept even as God would keep Jacob. Now, as a little sidelight here, side here, and I'm, I'm saying some of these things because we just had a, a, a fresh visit by the, the two, uh, you know, one, one pair who came. Uh, you know, they always come with uh, one who is the spokesman and the other is kind of the agreer, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, when they come. Uh, sometimes the agreer is the teacher of the one who's speaking, and, and sometimes it's the other way around if the, if the other was a really, really new at this all. But... There are a couple of things even in this passage. Oh, the book of John is loaded. <laughs> uh, but anyway, there are a couple of things even in this passage. You know, they make a big point of the fact that they serve Jehovah, who they say is the English uh, name of God. Well, it's not really. Uh, Jehovah doesn't come from English, but anyway. Notice what it says here, though, in this passage. And I emphasize that when we read it in the 11th verse and in the 12th verse. Keep them in thy name, the name which what? Thou hast given me, 13th verse, thy name which thou hast given me. <laughs> what does that mean? Jesus is Yahweh Jehovah. Amen. Well, what can they say? What can they do? Well, they can probably try to say, well, you know, he didn't really mean it that way. You know, whenever you've got a different persuasion, you can always argue that, well, it's not supposed to be interpreted that way. But that's what it says. We had a visit yesterday morning. Oh, you did? <laughs> Wasn't an older lady about it? No. It was, born in 1910. spokesman. She was, I don't know, they, they seemed pretty equal to me. But um, the thing they kept harping on was Jesus kept calling them Father. And right, wrong, or otherwise, I, I felt that maybe that was somewhat of an anthropomorphic statement by Jesus, if that's correct, that in order for us to understand, he puts things in those terms. I mean, they're saying, well, was he talking to himself? I says, well, he's talking to the one part of the Trinity. Well, that just blows their mind, you know, but is that the proper way to handle that? I think so. Uh, we have to recognize, I think, that when Jesus came in the flesh to live on this planet, this Philippians tells us that he stretched, stripped himself of his position in the sense of being the second person of the, of the uh, Trinity, that is, of his power. He stripped himself of his power and became a man. So in that sense, he could pray to God as his father, but in the eternal sense, God is still his father, but not in the sense of one pre-existing over the other. See, that's the point they make. The, the point the Jehovah's Witnesses make is that Jesus was the firstborn of creation. Well, the word firstborn of creation doesn't mean, is, has no reference to time. 
It doesn't mean that here's God and then he decides to create and so he creates Jesus. It, firstborn means the, the preeminent one, means the uh, one of, primate, of prime standing. The firstborn in a, in a Hebrew house was the, the one who had all the power. He was the one who would exert the father's authority. And uh, in a human sense, of course, he was subsequent in time. But in the biblical sense, relative to Jesus, has nothing to do with time or the subsequent uh, nature there. And yes, the, the term is anthropomorphic in the sense that Jesus became a human being. And uh, uh, in that sense, he had to speak to the Father as we would in many ways. But he still is, of course, co-equal with the Father. And there are so many statements, especially in the book of John, that, that indicate that. And I think this is one of them. You have given to me your name. What is his name? Yahweh. So Jesus carries the name Yahweh. And of course, it really, you know, the, the passage we hear so often at Christmas time kind of blows your mind too. Uh, when it talks about wonderful counselor, what is, it, what is he also called? Everlasting father. Whoa. <laughs> anyway. Thirdly, Christ, that is God, speaking to Jacob says, I will bring you back. I will bring you back. Can you imagine going forth with utter confidence that you will return to this place no matter what happens in the time intervening? No matter what threat, what danger, what other event might come your way, God will bring you back to this place. Nothing could prevent him from returning to the promised land. Now, if we look at that in the ultimate spiritual sense, which I think we've always got to remember here. I, I don't believe in spiritualizing every passage of Scripture and trying to twist it to make it say some kind of, uh, of you know, sublime spiritual truth. But there are eternal meanings behind so much of what is said in the Scripture that isn't specifically necessarily with that as the, its, its subject for the moment. But where God is saying, I will bring you back, God is saying that in effect to us too. You and I will be brought to the promised land. There is nothing in this life that can prevent us from entering the promised land. Nothing. And, and you know, Paul make, uh, makes that so clear to us. Let me read those verses that you're familiar with at the end of the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans 8, beginning at verse 35. You know, just... You know, whenever you begin to feel a little bit doubtful and you wonder whether God is really paying attention and, you know, your problems seem to be mounting up, go to the last part of the, well, read the whole eight chapter of Romans. That will really do you good. But look at these last verses, beginning at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written, for thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, that's a pretty dark picture, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Paul's not painting a glossy scene here, not a name-it-claim-it deal. You know, uh, health and wealth. He's not teaching a health and wealth gospel here. Paul is saying, you're going to have a, a, some rough time in life. And if the enemy could, he would destroy you, even as Jesus spoke of Peter saying that the enemy, the devil, would sift you as wheat, Peter. But God will be with us through it all. Verse 37. 
But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now that is true even if in the midst of the troubles we feel down and sometimes we even like Job did wonder where in the world God is in the midst of all of this. Even sometimes where we may feel that God has abandoned us, God does not look upon those thoughts as being true. God understands us. Jesus came and the scripture tells us he, he knew, he, he, he went through the problems that we go through. He became a man that we, that he might understand our situation. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I've heard people say, yes, but excluded the one thing that, that, that uh, you could say here, which would negate this whole thing, is that you can throw it away yourself. And that simply is not true. This is an all-encompassing statement. When it says that neither life, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, meaning the evil spirits of this world, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor high... I mean, it is an all-inclusive statement. There is nothing, not even your own supposed choice to be able to say, no, I'm not going to go God's way, I'm going to go some other way, after you've already been truly on the path. That is not possible either. Nothing can keep us separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That does not mean, as Paul said, what shall we do? Shall we sin that grace might abound? No. There are those, you know, who, who feel that, uh, well, if I'm saved and nothing can change that, then I might as well just go out and live like the devil and go to heaven. But that kind of thinking negates, in my feeling anyway, negates the fact that one is on the path to start with. If one can say, I'm going to live like the devil and go to heaven anyway, then I don't think they ever were on the path to heaven. Because if you're really on the path to heaven, the Spirit of God dwells within you, and that doesn't mean we don't sin. But it certainly means that we can't just, you know, decide to go out and live uh, as, as if there were no tomorrow and enjoy it. If we do it, it's going to be miserable. <laughs> and we're going to be one sad person. And I think God will bring us back to the right path if we were on it in the first place. So I will bring you back. Jacob was being uh, told that God would bring him back to the promised land, and that was, of course, a physical statement, but it also included the, the eternal concept, which applies to us. And then in the fourth, uh, the fourth promise he makes, he says, I will not leave you. This, of course, seems to be implied in all of what he is being saying. This is, of course, in this instant, partially, specifically an earthly statement. I will stay with you until my job with you is finished. But that doesn't mean then he leaves. Because when his job with us is finished, he then uh, promotes us on to glory, where we eternally live in his presence that we're conscious of with all of our being. Now we're conscious of God's presence by faith. By faith, I believe that Christ is in this room right now. I can't touch him. 
I can't see him, neither can you. But we know he's here because the scripture teaches us that where two or three are gathered in his name, I am there present with you. By the fact that we are all temples of the Holy Spirit, we know God is here. But one day we will be in his presence and we will see him. And that, is, as the song says, will be glory. Let me read this. I, I don't know how many of you spend much time in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's a wonderful book. And there are some of the most wonderful statements and promises in all of Scripture made in this book. And I'd like to read one of them made in the 31st chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, verses 6 to 8. Moses, as you know, is about ready to be promoted to glory. And uh, he's going to have to leave these people that he's led for these 40 years. And uh, he's turning over the reins of power to Joshua. And many things are said about Joshua in this and in the very first part of the book of Joshua. But notice what uh, God is saying through Moses here. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. These are the commandments, the enemies, anything that would come along in your way. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. God goes before us. God goes with us. There is nothing to be afraid of. And the writer of the Hebrews took that directly and uh, made it part of the New Testament promises, quoting literally from this in the 13th chapter where we read these words. First of all, he says, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Referring right back to Deuteronomy and also to Joshua. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? We have no reason to be afraid. We have all the confidence in the world. This is the promise that God has made to his people, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to you, to me. I will not leave you. I realize that there is a branch of uh, Protestant Christendom that believes that it's possible for one to be in and out of the kingdom of God as one walks through a door. In the room, out of the room, in the room, out of the room, in the room, out of the room. I don't think the scripture teaches that. I think the scripture makes it quite clear that when you're a child of God, you are forever a child of God. Your son or your daughter is always your son or your daughter. That child may choose to, as some are doing today, divorce his parents, you know or go off and act in a way that is unbecoming to, to your family, but that is still your son, your daughter. Nothing will ever change that relationship. It's eternal. 
So it is when we enter the kingdom of God. God is not an Indian giver. God is not one who, who takes someone in his kingdom one moment and then looks at you and say, oh, you blew it there, throws you back out of the kingdom. Oh, you, 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 can, you, you know, repented back into the kingdom, back out of the kingdom. You know, just become a kind of an eternal uh, super ball, you know, bouncing here and bouncing there. Super ball, not super bowl. <laughs> and uh, I, I just don't think, I mean, what security is there in that? If, if today you feel, oh man, I, you know, I got mad at this person and I, I yelled at my wife or whatever, I'm out of the kingdom. I got to go do this, get straight so I'm back into the kingdom. Uh, just neither height nor depth nor things to come, past, present, future, <laughs> whatever. Nothing can prevent us from being in the love of Christ. Jacob was, as you might imagine, awestruck by this dream. Would you be? Now, of course, today, we don't put much stock in dreams. Most of us don't, anyway. We had a dream. Most of our dreams are so weird that we're glad we don't have to put much stock in them, you know. Uh, uh, in fact, I don't know if you've ever had a dream. Uh, I've had dreams where I cannot even imagine where that came from because I've never experienced or read or seen or anything like some of the stuff. It's totally invented. You just wonder. But here, Jacob had a dream, and he knew it was from God. It was so vivid, so clear, like no dream he had ever had. It was forever etched on the mind of this man. John Locke, in his writings, said that people, as they are born, are what he called them as tabula rasa, that is, blank tablets. And then, as you go through life, etched on this blank tablet, are the experiences of life which begin to make you into the person that you are. Well, I don't think that that's, you know, there's some truth there, and I'm not talking about that, but the point that I'm trying to make is that things are etched into our minds, into our hearts. And some things are etched in fire, and we never forget them. And hopefully your first encounter with God, if you had, and not everybody has the same kind of encounter with God. There are those who were born and raised in a Christian home and they came up through their lives and, and became an adult and they can't really reach back to a point and say, at this point God uh, came into my life in a mighty way and I truly became born again. There are, I know people who, who cannot come to that specific moment in time, but they know that God has worked in their hearts. And, and so we dare not be the one to, to tell God how to do it. But many of us did have an encounter with God where, where we really first met Him in a way that changed us, and that's etched on our hearts. And we don't forget it. You know, I can remember the, the, I can even still remember the room more or less, the scene, even though it took place a long time ago. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I wasn't all that long ago, at 10, 10, <laughs> 10 15. <laughs> anyway, he what would forever see this, this dream in his mind. And encounters with the Almighty are unforgettable. He says, surely God is in this place in response. Now that is a reference to a special presence of God. We can say God is in this place right now. And I believe it. But God is not exclusively in this place because God is in all of the cities of, I mean, all of the churches where the gospel is truly preached today of Reading. 
and across America and around the world. You know, in Genesis, the scripture says, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. That doesn't mean he was just hovering in one place and you kind of saw kind of a whirlwind on the water like a helicopter blast, you know, as God was hovering there. Then he went hovered over there. Now, God, you know, encompassed the whole ball. And, and God is specially here with us today, and that presence is special to us, but he is equally special all around the world wherever his people are meeting today. And I think that maybe Jacob didn't really understand the, etern the, um, the uh, universal concept as much as we do today, but I, I do believe that he didn't, ex didn't believe God was only at that spot at that moment. It was a special presence, a unique manifestation of God's reality. The impact was so great upon this man, Jacob, that he renamed the hilltop, and hence the, the nearby city. He said, this is Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, where was he? He was out in the country. He was sleeping out under the stars. He wasn't even in a building. But he called it the house of God, the place of God's special presence. And he, he went on to say at the very end of the chapter, also he says, this is Shar Shamayim, which means the gate of heaven. Because you see in his dream, he stood at the foot of the ladder at the top of which stood God himself, the gate of heaven. Well, everywhere is the gate of heaven where we stand facing God. How powerful did this uh, image really etch itself on the mind of this man, Jacob? Well, if we look towards the very end of the book of Genesis, it does have an end. Genesis chapter 48, in verses 3 and 4, here, here is Jacob reminiscing. He's speaking to his son, Joseph. Now, Joseph has grown up to become a mighty man in the land of Egypt. So we're talking about 100 years later. How much do you expect to remember in 100 years? <laughs> well, if God were to allow you to live on this planet for another 100 years, you probably wouldn't remember too much by that time. But... Uh, then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. You see, he remembered exactly what God had said to him. And he remembered vividly that, that dream. And he even knew where it took place at Luz. Let's look at chapter 29. No, we're not, not there yet. We have to finish chapter 28. Verse 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone they had put under his head. I, yeah, I, I always have trouble with that. I just cannot imagine that. I have a hard time with a pillow. <laughs> it always feels hard. But a rock? Oh, well. Uh, and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that thou dost give me, 
I will surely give thee a tenth. Well, can you imagine how much sleep he may have gotten the rest of the night after that dream? Especially with a stone for, for a pillow, you know. He has this dream, it's this vivid, vivid dream. Now, did he sleep on until the dawn and then wake up and remember the dream? Oh, it, it doesn't say. I have a feeling, though, that that dream would have propelled him awake and he probably was wide-eyed for the rest of the night, whatever rest of the night there was. Scripture tells us he was up at the first light. What was the very first thing he did? Brush his teeth, comb his hair, jump in the nearby creek for an early morning shower? You know, what, what did he do? Scripture says that his very first act was to take the stone that had been his pillow, tip it up on its end as a pillar, and then he poured olive oil on top of it. What in the world did he do that for? <laughs> so nobody else could sleep on it? Put your head in a pile of grease? No. It was an act of anointing. He was anointing the pillar the, the stone that had been his pillow when the dream occurred, he was anointing it to God. And in so doing, he was consecrating himself to the God of that dream. It was an act of consecration, an act of anointing. Now what's very interesting is that the people of the nearby town of Luz had no idea that he was out there, they had no idea of his dream, they had no idea that their town had been renamed. They continued to call it Luz, or Luz, which meant almond tree. Well, it's kind of a pretty name for a town, I guess. They had no idea, though, that it had been renamed Bethel, which is a far greater name, house of God. But that would be its name. Although, as far as anybody else was concerned, here was this obscure man all by himself up in the hillside, and he renames the town. Uh and it becomes its name. When does it become its name, though? Well, Scripture really does tell us. If you turn to the book of Judges, in the first chapter, beginning at verse 22, Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and his family go free. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. The city from which he came was from that moment on officially renamed Bethel by the Israelites because that's why they knew it. That was its name in their own thinking because Jacob had given it that name. This man wanted to carry on that uh, old name and so he goes off to another land and establishes a new city and calls it by the name of the city from which he had come. It is known as Bethel to this very day. From the conquest to today, you go to the land of Israel and you go visiting on the West Bank, you will travel to, or you may get to travel to, just depending on how upset things are over there, to the town of Bethel. Bethel is on one little hillock 
And adjacent to it, to the east, is the ruins of Ai. And uh, it's not much of a town. It's pretty small. But nevertheless, it has this tremendous historical heritage. Still is called Bethel today. In the, these last verses of, of Genesis 28 that we're looking at, it would seem like, God, uh, like Jacob is uh, striking a bargain with God, doesn't it? Well, God, you know, if you give me food and clothes and, and you bring me back to this place, you know what I'll do for you? I'll do for you a wonderful thing. I'll give you 10% of everything I get. I'm sure God was thrilled to pieces with the whole idea. But what we have here, literally, is a unilateral effort being made by Jacob. Because God didn't throw it open to a bargain. God didn't say, as he made this promise here to Jacob, he didn't say, if, 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 this, 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 this. He said, this is what I am going to do, Jacob. So Jacob's throwing in the ifs and making a bargain out of this. Or it would seem, possibly, that that's what he's doing. God had already made the promise. It was a closed book. So he's kind of wasting his breath here. If that was what he was actually saying. But it's, it's very possible he's simply acknowledging something here. It's possible that he's simply saying, well, if God really does provide all my needs and God really does bring me back here, then it's obvious that he is my God and that I am his chosen servant. I mean that all of these things will prove out the reality of, of this promise and of this dream. But interesting, one of the great uh, Bible preachers of last century, Spurgeon, makes this little statement. He says, Here was a little of the bargaining spirit in covenanting for bread to eat and raiment to put on. But still there was genuine faith. He renounces all other trusts, casts himself upon divine care, and dedicates a tithe to the Lord. Now he goes on, I'll, I'll read it in a minute, but he's saying, you know, there is a little bit of a bargaining here. But, but Spurgeon is saying, but that's not important here because he really is exhibiting true faith. And he is renouncing all else to serve God. <laughs> then he takes this concept of the tithe, as many preachers might do. He says, God has dealt so well with each of us that we ought never to stint his cause. Can we not do something even now to honor the Lord with our substance and with the first fruits of our increase? In other words, Spurgeon takes this particular passage as one to teach the concept of giving. Jacob referred to this pillar as the house of God. Now, most of us might say, well, I'm going to the house of God, and by that we mean the church building. And he's talking about a rock. You know, this, this rock he stuck up here and poured some oil on top, this, this oily rock here. He calls it the house of God. And that might seem like a very strange concept. But what he really is saying is this is a memorial to what God has revealed to me this day. And that is that there is a ladder between heaven and earth. There is constant contact. God may be transcendent, but he is also imminent. That is, God is here. God is with us. He eternally dwells with his people. 
in their hearts and in their lives. He dwells in this building and yet he dwells in this, which Paul says is the temple of the Holy Spirit, this very body in which we live. The image of the ladder in the dream and God's promise to go with Jacob reinforces this truth that God dwells with his people. And so he sets up this little rock as a memorial. How long did it stay up? How long would it remain as a memorial? Could it be found later on when they conquered the land and came in and after the 400 years of captivity in, in Egypt, could they still find this rock? I doubt it. If you've ever been over there, you would wonder how they'd find any rock. There are just jillions of rocks everywhere. I mean, it's the rockiest country you've probably ever seen if you ever get there. And, you know, the Hebrews have an old story that God went around making the world and he had a pile of rocks left over and he just dumped them all in Canaan. Well, that isn't, of course, what happened, but it is a rocky place. And you wonder as you look at that, this is called the land of milk and honey? You think, well, I guess if you're accustomed to living in the Sahara, it might seem that way. But... Uh, it has changed, of course, over the years. Uh, the land, one of the things, I, I don't want to pop anybody's bubble who hasn't yet been over there and has a chance maybe to go to the Holy Land, but uh, that land has drastically changed in many ways. It has been uh, very, very poorly kept over the centuries because as the Arabic peoples moved in, the, Canaan, the, uh, the uh, Palestinians, as they're called today, uh, they were under Turkish rule for a long time, and there just has not been an input of capital into that land under their... Uh, they just lived off it the best they could without improving it hardly at all. And, and so it still bears much of that. Now, the Israelis have been doing a lot to try to plant forests and to bring in all of their uh, additions, and, and, you know, the desert is beginning to bloom like the rose under, under their uh, care. But uh, the land was neglected for so long, it just doesn't look today like it did when it was conquered 3,500 years ago. Well, wanting to respond to God in some way, Jacob promises God a tenth. Now, I don't have time to develop this. I want to say several things about this because we have some proper conceptions and some misconceptions, not only about this, but about the whole concept of the tithe and I'd like to just talk about that uh, briefly, and, and there's not time to do that today. But here, here's a response. Uh, it, it, I, I, th I think maybe there, as Spurgeon points out, is a little bit of a bargain here, but it also is a legitimate response. This is what God has promised. What do I do? What do I give to God? I'll give God a tenth. We might say, well, where did he get that idea? Well, he had a very good example. Remember Abraham and Melchizedek? Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth. And certainly that was in his mind. And so he responds in like manner here. And uh, we'll, we'll develop this a little bit next week.